field dispatches. Imagine that razor-sharp knife hurtling towards the wooden board your face is poking through, while your mates in the audience watch on in thunderous laughter. That's the exhilarating and no doubt terrifying spot dozens of Annabelle Holland's luckiest audience members have gone through over the years. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Field Dispatches. I'm Nick Stokes, so I'm going to be gathering stories and interviews and conversations with plenty of interesting characters in the events world over the next coming weeks, months and years and feeding them into this show. Today we catch up with our first interviewer, a performer, producer and programmer, Annabelle Holland. We're going to be talking about developing shows across continents, the international fringe scene, uh, the art of both character creation and audience interaction. Annabelle is going to be letting me in on some of her earliest inspirations. We talk about her programming methods, uh, the importance of developing new talents, and we pick up some fantastic insights into throwing knives in a show. I was commissioned to make a piece about a fairly accurate knife thrower. <laughs> I kind of continued that theme in my work. And they rode motorbikes up there on the roof of the old pyramid stage. And we were all on standby to save the tent if it was to uh, take off. Yeah, it was really tripping and he nearly felt we had to sort of almost carry him down the steps to get him off the stage. Um, I think it's about attitude and not about ego. And they said, yeah, we'll stay. So we did the show in absolute torrential rain. They didn't show their faces, so they made it look like it was us doing the sex stuff, apparently. I'd really like to fly. Can you... Can you make can that you, happen? Can you make me fly? And I said, yeah. But which circus superstition landed Annabelle in hot water with the rest of her crew? And how did a stitch-up become her annual highlight? Listen on to find out all. Okay. So, Annabelle Holland, thank you very much for joining us. My the pleasure. First field dispatches. Here's your quick round to start things off. Cider or beer? Ale. Cabaret or burlesque? For me, cabaret. Okay. But there's nothing wrong with burlesque. Of course. Fair play. Home or away? Ooh. I love going away, but I love coming home. Both. Both? My love both. Why not? Let's throw it in there. As you're the first one, why not? Special treat. Australia or Asia? Are we talking holiday or work? Take it as you will. Oh, is there any other choice? What comes to mind? You can, you can throw some additional info in there if you want, you know, to justify your reasoning or thought process. But oh, they, I go there for very different reasons. So Australia, um, I've got lots of friends there. Uh-huh. I love the performing scene there. And obviously the climate's a bonus. Asia, I'm a big India fan. I love India. Um, feel like it's a confession. But if you've got a settle on the f- on <laughs> so one side of the fence, in India, I would go there for humanity. I would go to India for lessons in humanity. Okay. Not finding myself and all that bollocks. But okay. Just... <laughs> we'll settle on that. That's cool. Yeah. Road trip or train trip? Hard questions. Train trip in India. First thing that comes to your mind. Come on, road. Road. Road trip. Right you can there, stop you go. And do what you want. Of course, on the freedom. Way. Rehearsed or ad libbed. Combination of the two. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, it's like one of your magic secrets. Yeah, well, it's, it was magic. Um, I oh, work so within a yours. structure, and then I have bits where I can go freeform. Okay. That's much more fun. 
Acoustic or electric? <laughs> I don't know what you're referring to. Um, <laughs> well, what just came to your mind? <laughs> um, well, there's no rules about this program being <laughs> before the watershed. <laughs> um, acoustic, I think. I don't know. <laughs> no, go back. Listeners can take it as they will. Venue or field? Doing a bit more professional. Venue or field? Both. both. I'm, I love both. I know I'm a bit on the fence, <laughs> aren't I? But there's beautiful things in both of them, and there's there's harder things in both of them, mm-hmm. and um, depends on what I'm doing. Okay. But I love performing outside mm-hmm. because generally people have the choice to stay or go, mm-hmm. um, and if they stay, it yes. means more. That's true. But indoors, you can create a magic environment that that people are inside which yeah. is um, equally special and you can yeah. have more minute detail mm-hmm. which is a lovely thing too and you know the you know the peril of the weather that helps but it can also make it interesting as well that's true true okay moving on uh, crew drinks or staff meal drinks or drinks of course yeah. of course nice knives or aerial knives 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 when it's in the past I would have chosen aerial for sure uh huh but knives are more interesting and challenging than okay. unusual, I think. Bit more of a toughy one now. Okay. Someone argue they've already been tough. Favourite experience or event you have not been involved in organising? What immediately comes to mind? I was talking about this the other day. Two things. Oh. Am I allowed to? Yeah, go ahead. Why not? Um, one was the... This is going to show how old I am now. Um, one is our chaos. Who were a French circus? They were groundbreaking. They were the company that made me want to perform. Okay. And they were crazy French people who picked people up on the way and um, created a, an insane family of crazy folk who made sculptures out of cars, blew things up, did stuff with chainsaws, did all the kind of crazy stuff that's kind of quite normal now. They were the first people doing Pioneers it on the, the scene. on the road. They, yeah. they toured as a circus okay. and they were completely anarchic and it was fucking brilliant. They did a show on the roof of the old pyramid stage at Glastonbury and they rode motorbikes up there and they had uh, Pedro and Galbraith doing um, acro at the top, acro balance. And it was beautiful. And so, what is acro balance? Just very, very briefly. Two or balance? more people uh, balancing, so like standing on shoulders or holding someone up with one hand and standing on someone's head or okay. acrobatic balance, mm-hmm. basically, very physical. And they were performing that up there. And when, and then, when were these guys operating and like doing this kind of thing? Oh, they well, Pierre Bidon, who who set up the company, died a couple of years ago. I don't, I'm not a massive historian, to be honest, but it's kind of the beginning of the move from traditional circus into contemporary circus. Mm. It was called New Circus at the time. You can't really call it that anymore because it's not so new. But um, I saw them perform and I, they made me want to perform and then I found myself in a workshop working, balancing on him and nearly fell off because I was just struck by the fact that he was the one that made me want to perform and suddenly I was had my hands on his knees and was doing a handstand on them or something crazy <laughs> so you're already giving us some insights into 
some of your past and you know inspirations. The last one of the quick fire rounds and interesting facts about you. So I didn't say the other one. Well, oh, cut the straight in. Carry Guarda. on. Carry on. De La Guarda, amazing show from I think they were Brazilian, Argentine. Shit, I can't remember. Anyway, they did a show in the Roundhouse years and years and years ago. The first show that they did was the most amazing show I've ever seen. Well, there you have it. Yeah. And the final one, an interesting fact about your good self. I've been in the Beano. You've been in the Beano? And I've what? been in a porn film. <laughs> I didn't do sex, though, just Not in the Beano, anyway. Were you just one of the extras <laughs> knocking at the door or something? They did a circus... Um, it was a circus porn in, in a big top. <laughs> and what we didn't know was that they... I have never seen it. I don't think I can. I don't think I can bring myself <laughs> to see it. But I was doing an aerial act that we didn't really realise that it kind of looked like a lesbian aerial act. We didn't plan it that way. It just sort of happened. And, um, and then what they did was they filmed our bodies and then filmed the filmed our faces and, and and our bodies doing the performance and then filmed the bodies of the two sex workers in in the uh, film and um, they didn't show their faces so they made it look like it was us doing the sex stuff, apparently. Cheeky. Very I couldn't cheeky. bring myself to see it. I think I might have to one day. <laughs> I'm not giving you the title though. Okay. That must remain a mystery. Thanks very much again for featuring as our first, you know, guest on Field Field Dispatches podcast. And um, so, yeah, you've already enlightened us on, on quite a lot. So why don't you, in a nutshell, tell us what it is you get up to most of the time these days and then how you ended up doing that. Okay. I do lots of different things. Okay. Um, I have a business degree and then I ran away and joined the circus. Classic. Um, <laughs> like everyone does, you know. And... I was an aerialist for a long time. Um, I've now retired from that, and I've gone into the much harder world of trying to be funny. <laughs> uh, I do knife throwing, comedy, knife throwing, uh, street shows, uh, cabaret, comparing, um, lots of different kinds. When of you say street shows, what? Just for those who are completely uneducated about these different types of performance area, more about street shows. Well, I, do, I do two different. Oh, obviously, streets. <laughs> it's outside on the street corner. Um, I do uh, walkabout, which is um, interactive oh. and not pressure to do a show, but it's individual moments with people, mm-hmm. um, more interactive and more um, smaller scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, although people obviously notice you from a long way away. Um, generally, it's comedy-based or, or in getting people involved in some kind of shenanigans. Okay. Um, and then street shows are performing a show on the street where you gather an audience and you try to keep them and uh, try to give them a good time. And hopefully they stay all the way through the show and not leave halfway. Um, some people busk it. I've never busked particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, so yours always at other events then if you're not busting yeah so book shows um, at arts events or festivals or um, street street events that kind of stuff and how did you end up you know being here doing this kind of thing tell us a little bit about your time at the circus Um, I've worked with a few different circuses Uh, it's brilliant I don't know if I would want to do it for my whole life Um, it's one of the best things I've ever done um the 
working as a tight group of people who create their own performance space, who live together, work together, um, make work together, share skills, argue, laugh, cry. (laughs) You're kind of in a bubble um, and you rock up in different towns and you're never there for long enough to really get to know many people in that town. So you're very reliant on each other, which is loads of fun and can be terrible too. Um, It's all the good things and all the bad things Mm. about everything, really. You get the weather. It can be brilliant. It can be terrible. Um, You get blisters. You get injuries. You get hard work. And you laugh a lot as well. How does, out of interest, how does the weather impact uh, work and, you know, operations at a circus? Because I'm assuming most of it happens inside a big top, so they're fairly resistant to a bit of, bit of a gale. Uh, or are they yes actually quite no. unstable in a bit of a gale? What happens there? Well, there's, there's shows that have lost their tents, and if you oh. lose your tent, you lose your performance space uh-huh. and the show can't go on. Right. So, um, a tent master I worked with described the tent as a living thing a living being that you have to look after and um, you know you're up at eight o'clock on a Monday morning after a really hard Sunday driving all the vehicles onto the ground and maybe you've driven two or three or four vehicles and done that many journeys had not much sleep and then you're banging stakes in mm-hmm. you don't get a day off um, and you all put the tent up together and uh so it's not, then, a separate, it's not a separate team in the circus to put down. Well, if you're working with a big show, uh-huh. then um, quite often they'll have build crew. And, you know, the, the, quite often women don't do the build on the bigger shows. Um, but in the show I, shows I've been in, uh, you, you do do that. So um, everyone does everything. Mm-hmm. I was an aerialist at the time, so I considered it part of training. Um, but some days it's absolutely shitting it down with rain and you really don't want to be there and you're cold and miserable and um, it's getting muddier by the minute mm. and, you know, that's not fun. I think the the kind of worst experience, well, not the worst experience, an experience I had with the tent was uh, there's an old superstition where they say you shouldn't whistle in the tent. And um, I was working with some trad friends from traditional circus were very very superstitious I have my own superstitions too yeah. I don't like picking up knives it's unlucky to pick up knives it's a bit unlucky when you're a knife thrower <laughs> certainly they're yeah. challenging when you're a knife thrower yeah. <laughs> I've had to let that one go a bit um, but in the circus if you whistle in the tent they say that you're uh, calling up the wind and you really don't want it to be windy when you're living and working next to and with a tent a uh, big top so one day I think we we used to wind each other up and have have a bit of banter in the um, in the cast and crew, and I whistled in the tent by accident one day, and one of my friends, sorry Simon, uh, told me off for whistling, so I did it more, and and then that night the wind came and we all had to sleep in our clothes, and we were all on standby to save the tent if it was to. Uh, take off and some... uh, the tent master was up every sort of 15 minutes doing a walk around the mm-hmm. tent and nobody had any sleep and I wasn't very popular the next oh, day no. I didn't do that again <laughs> ever well that's fascinating that's interesting and uh, 
Sounds like a lot of practice for working in other larger events to further down the line, that kind of practice of having to be ready and able to chip in and you know, able to work in any weather while putting up this kind of infrastructure and these kind of tents and such. Yeah, and in the other work that I do, you know, um, zone managing and managing venues and things, I think it stood me in good stead because I understand how tents work, mm-hmm. I understand when they're not safe, I understand uh, how people would like to treat their tents as well. And um, I've been able to, a couple of times, stop small disasters from happening because I've known how to deal with the situation. So I'm really grateful for that experience. And I do, there's something really special about making your own performance space and then performing in it and taking it down and, mm. and then going off. I really loved being in convoy mm. when, when you've all packed the tent down and you're all ready to drive off together as a company that's really exciting it's just really fun because you don't know where you're going next and um, you're going somewhere new which is exciting did anybody ever play that classic convoy song that was or the uh, the theme tune to the American sitcom convoy <laughs> no we moments? were all too tired by then oh, of course you've, done, you've kind of got up done a show packed down uh, put the tent away all the props loaded up the trucks mm-hmm. by this point you haven't really stopped for dinner and then and then you're driving and you don't mm-hmm. know how long the drive's going to be so um I think everybody is in their own vehicles kind of shoving what popcorn they can in their face and, you know, getting a quick bite to eat before you drive off. Of course, of course. Life on the, on the road. Um, so how did becoming a knife thrower, how did that fit into working in the circus? So I was an aerialist and I toured with the same friend who didn't like me whistling, uh, whose um, uncle was a famous knife thrower in the traditional circus community. And uh, he's been knife throwing since he was nine. And when you're touring with the circus, you you have training time where you skill swap or someone's doing something and you want to have a go and, mm-hmm. you know, you teach each other stuff. So um, we were training one day and Simon got his knife board out and got me to stand in front of the knives, uh, stand in front of the board, and he threw knives at me. And... Um, Rather than being the one having the knives thrown at me, I wanted to have a go. So I had to go and realised that I have quite good hand-eye coordination and I was fairly accurate. So every time we kind of had a bit of time, which wasn't that often, but we'd get the board out and I'd have a go. And I nev- I've never thrown them at him. I need to rectify that, I think. Um, and then I forgot about it. Or it was kind of in the back of my mind and then somebody wanted me to have a ground-based act and I was commissioned to make a piece uh, about a fairly accurate knife thrower. <laughs> I kind of continued that theme in my work. Um, <laughs> and we did the show, myself and my performing partner at the time, and it went really badly, it was terrible, and we decided we'd never do that again. And then maybe six months later, we were we had a cabaret and street show doing it. I don't really know how we went from never doing it again to suddenly doing it all the time but it's fun and uh, over the years I worked harder to get better and better and Mm. um, in that show it was more of a spoof show where I wasn't actually throwing them at people because I didn't feel ready and it took me quite a long time to feel ready and safe because the stakes are very high of course yeah Uh, when I was doing aerial stuff I had my aerial partner's lives in my hand every day I was the sort of so you, you're used to that kind of risk, I imagine. Yeah, that, but that, it's a that. different kind of risk because mm. uh, holding on is easier than letting go. 
<laughs> it's easier to be more accurate holding yeah. on <laughs> than it is that throwing something around, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, so, yeah, I practiced for a very long time before I was mm. brave enough to throw. I know, I was certainly very interested when you first told me about becoming an ice thrower, but for those listening, I'm sure it'll be as well. How long, how much practice did it require? Did you need to put in before you were confident enough to do it regularly well, as part of the show? It's really hard to quantify because it's little bits over a long mm-hmm. period of time. So, you know, it wasn't, you can't really rehearse knife throwing all day, every day. And when I was taught, my friend who taught me um, said not to practice for more than 15 minutes at a time because it affects your... I think you try too hard. Mm. And so... But I'm quite obsessive. If I want to get good at something, I'll do it over and over and over and over again. So (laughs) I, I kind of broke that rule. And I think there is a point where it's diminishing returns. So... You, you can practice and practice and practice and then you practice so much you become inaccurate because you're not trying as hard. You have to have intention. Mm. It's like um, an acrobat when they go for a tumble, when they go for a somersault. Um, if they don't have intention and they don't really mean it, then they're not going to complete the somersault. They're going to have an accident. But if I throw a knife and I don't, I'm not really giving it 100%, it's not going to work so well. So I don't know how long I practiced for, but the first time I actually threw at someone properly in a show was in Australia. I'd already thrown around something, so I get people to go behind the board and I throw around their face, which is fine and I'm accurate with that. Um, But the first time I was working with the person I was throwing knives at, turns out he was a... hadn't told me this. I didn't know the guy I was throwing knives at and... uh, it was for a vaudeville who done it in Perth Fringe, and um, it turns out that he was the news anchor for WA News. And that's so a big I'd, label I'd news. I practiced really hard because I, I obviously I didn't want to go to Australia and then stab someone. Um, <clears throat> so I I practiced really 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 hard, and then found out he was a news anchor, and I was a little bit nervous, <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit nervous. But he was brilliant. James was brilliant. He. Uh, I explained it very slowly to him and tried to go through, show him how accurate I was. And he said, can we just do it? So we just did it. And when the person you're throwing at is um, confident, then you can be confident that they're not going to do something something stupid as well. Because it's 50-50. If they move and they walk into my knife, I have to trust. I have to trust them to do the right thing as well. So it sounds like uh, the knife's throwing was one of your first kind of uh, performances down on the ground rather than aerial is that correct? I guess so yeah yeah I think so I suppose now that's evolved into over the years your company phonetic engineering yeah well that started the aerial stuff was part of that as well so when when I was doing aerial stuff phonetic engineering existed Mm -hmm. and it's just evolved as I've evolved and changed what I do and expanded what I do and add to my portfolio of, of work so that's the constant thing and then I bring people different performers in to work on different shows and sometimes I work as a solo performer mm-hmm. sometimes I work with other people so just just as a bit of an elevator pitch give us an intro into phonetic engineering you're going to introduce it to someone across the industry but what would you say phonetic engineering is it's a circus and street theatre company mm-hmm. that produces I like to think it's pretty accessible work for fun generally I also do slightly more darker stuff that's, that's cabaret uh, my 
character Bunny's a psycho killer and uh, she's killed off all her ex-boyfriends. She sings a really cheery song about how she's killed them all off. And um, so that's a bit more adult. I don't mm. really do that in front of a family audience. Yes. And you were mentioning, uh, you were talking about Bunny before and it sounded like it was certainly one of your favourite characters. Yeah, she's my, she's my absolute favourite. Um, she's the, after doing a lot of more family, not twee stuff, but more family orientated work, uh, Bunny is my alter ego. She's, she's, she says all the things that come into your head that you shouldn't say. And I love that. I love her yeah. for that. And um, I'm making a full length show with her soon. That's so. it. I'm very excited about that. And walk us through a, a quick, quickly walk us through a show with Bunny. What happens there? How does it work? Well, I don't want to tell you too much because I want people to watch that's, it. That's but, true enough. Um, <laughs> Tantalise us. <laughs> so, uh, Bunny is a domestic goddess. She's very good uh, domestically, mainly because she's uh, used to getting rid of evidence. Mm. <laughs> and uh, so she has great cleaning skills. And uh, she's not, not averse to cooking a bit of man pie. And. Um, she sings a song about how she's killed off all her ex-lovers and throws knives at a man from the audience. Yeah, you know, terrifying um, stuff. Comedy based. With your male. Yeah, I think um, it's surprising the number of guys that actually want to be that person. Yeah. Even though in some of my shows I set up that I'm slightly mentally deranged and slightly um, inaccurate as well, guys still want to stand in front of the board. It's bizarre. <laughs> But great. Does that, does, do you think it helps that they've got an audience so they want to be like, you know, they're confident men and they can not scare of anything? No, I'll let you into a secret. I don't pick the really cocky guys. I pick the guys that look really sweet and, and, and shy who really don't want to be up there. Because Why is that? Are they, are they a bit easier to help manage on stage? Well, it's the comedy value, isn't yeah. it? I mean, my character's quite strong, mm-hmm. strong female character. And if the guy's having a good time <laughs> sounds awful if the guy's having a good time and showing off it can sort of interfere with the dynamic of the okay. of the show and um, if it's somebody who's a little bit more embarrassed or shy or generally shitting themselves um, really scared then it works better and it's more funny um, I did have a guy once who came up he was at Glastonbury and we put a blindfold on him and we did some of the show, it was a duo show I was doing, and we took the blindfold off and he he just looked completely shocked. And I said, are you okay? And he said, I'm on acid. <laughs> and so he put the blindfold on and obviously he's seen all these lovely visuals and then we'd taken the blindfold off and he was had a massive audience looking at him and he did what on earth had just gone on so that was fun so yeah it was really tripping and he nearly felt we had to sort of almost carry him down the steps to get him off the stage it was very funny um so yeah it's about it's about the interaction with my victim and the more that's where the improvising comes in and that's where the fun mm-hmm. stuff happens because i can't prescribe what they're going to do the part of the fun is playing with them and their character and how they how they interact with my character and how they accept what's happening to them. Because I'm sure, you know, initially when they come up on stage, they don't know that they're going to have knives thrown at them because the board's hidden. So it's revealed a bit later. They do know I'm the psycho killer, but they they don't know that that's what's going to happen. You have some shocked faces when that's revealed. (laughs) 
So tell me about how, how Bunny started. My, um, am I right in saying it started in Australia? I started Bunny. Where did I start Bunny? No, Bunny first. Bunny was born from the worst gig I've, one of the worst gigs I've ever done. I was at this horrible, horrible gig in a caravan park in North Wales. And I realised when I got there that they, it was the wrong gig for me and that it just wasn't going to work very well. And they'd given me this hideous place to stay. It was really cold and there was no towels. They hadn't, I thought I was staying in a B&B or something, but it was this kind of empty flat. And it was, it was a bit... I'd travelled seven hours to get there. And it was a bit rubbish, really. So I, I just picked up my ukulele and started messing around with it. And I think because I felt quite irreverent about the whole thing, yeah. I just start, came up with this song. So she came from something it's great when something good comes from something that's not so good <laughs> and then I premiered her in front of uh, loads of street performers and I then took her to Australia after I performed her a bit over here but she's mainly been seen in Australia okay. um, she's been in three award nominated shows in Fringe in Australia and uh, yeah she's loads of fun the Aussies like it Mm-hmm. It's it's their kind of humour. It's quite good for for the UK as well. Sort of slightly dark humour. So uh, just carry on where we left off there. I think we were in Australia. Were we? Oh, that's so, nice, isn't uh, it? It's just where you want to be, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Bunny was over there. Bunny was in Australia. Oh, Bunny was having a great time. She was. Yeah, she loved it. Did she go there regularly? <laughs> yeah, I went there every year for three years. This year I took a holiday from it. Um, but the last three years before that, I've mm. been over doing um, guest spots in cabarets. And then the last year I took, and also other shows... Um, and the last year I took my own full-length solo show. This, that whole scene is brilliant because you do end up working with lots of new people and forging good bonds with people. And I worked with a brilliant... That show was made on three different continents. So <laughs> um, I was in the UK and Brian O'Gorman, who's a brilliant Canadian comedian, was in Canada and we kind of wrote it together. And then we got to Australia and put it together and then decided why not he should be in it. I'm not sure I'd do it again like that, but it was, it was tricky. an interesting process. <laughs> why not? So, working in Australia, what's it like in comparison to the UK, working in the UK cabaret kind of scene? 
Is that there's a well, my experience is fringe, so fringe is a different kind of fish fish altogether, yeah. Fringe is where hundreds of performers of all different kinds descend on a city and are all in very close proximity doing lots and lots of different kinds of shows, and it's a really big melting pot of talent and skill and stupidity and brilliance and uh, so it's quite an amazing thing to be part of if you're a performer because you meet lots of people who from all over the world that you mm-hmm. wouldn't have worked with before um, you meet old friends uh, you know when I go back I've got friends that I work with and people that um, I'm really excited to see and every time you work you work with, with, with other new people so new collaborations and new ideas come up and you know, I've helped people with their shows and uh, directing bits of directing work on shows that are, are there already, and people have done the same for me. So it's there's a great exchange and a great um, social scene as well. Mm-hmm. Everybody likes to go out for a drink after their shows, mm-hmm. and everybody watches each other's shows as well. So you get good critiques from people and good support from people as well. Mm-hmm. One hell of a country, size-wise, though. Do you guys go and convoy from city to city, or is it everyone just flying around? How does that work? I've only worked in Perth, actually, Um, but there's a a kind of a run where you go from Perth to Adelaide. So most people take um, that option. You're saying? That's my Siri. Siri's getting involved. (laughs) I wasn't saying anything, Siri. Did you accidentally summon me? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd love to summon Is people. he talking in an Australian accent? Yeah. No wonder. He had us talk about Australia. Oh, maybe that's what it was. Sorry, Siri, I'm going to have to uh, put you to bed. There we go. Um, <laughs> where were we? <laughs> Adelaide, Perth, working... There's a, there's a route Oh, yeah. So people go and work Perth Fringe and then they take their show mm. to Adelaide Fringe. And, um, and then there's Melbourne Comedy Festival afterwards. So... Um, I can't really stay that long. I think my aim next time I go would be to take mm. a show to both yeah. Adelaide and Perth. But I want to go and suss out Adelaide first because it's the there are three really big fringe, fringes now. There's Edinburgh, which is the biggest, Adelaide, which is the next biggest, oh, really? and then Perth, okay. which has grown quite rapidly mm. um, to become the third largest fringe Perth must be a pretty lively place these days then what's it like as a city I've never been there myself well I don't know I've never been there when it's not been fringe okay so it's so, always been pretty mad in comparison to normal life in any of these cities yeah you know, and there's, there's a kind of a um, an area that most of the fringe happens in although there are sort of outreach venues as well but, um, but most things happen in a, a small kind of area so mm-hmm. it's very easy for people to go from one show to another and to buy tickets and mm-hmm. to hang out and stuff and that's fun you know you get to know one area of the city quite well but mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I know other little bits of it but yeah I, I it's predominantly mining um people people go away and work and earn loads of money and aren't allowed to drink when they're there and then they come back and they they go out and have a party yeah. Yeah, it's lovely. I mean, I I feel really lucky that I do something that enables me to be able to do that, and yeah, yeah. Um, it's not without its risks financially and mm-hmm. you know psychologically. It's the first time I went; it was a really big thing. I was going to the other side of the planet to work with a load of people that I'd never met in my mm-hmm. life before, and it could have gone either way. And it 
it was a really great experience and um, I was very happy and lucky to have gone and done mm. it. It must have paid off, lads, there, right? Yeah. Oh, and has there been anywhere else you've performed around the world that's been on a par or just fantastic or so? I don't know. My, fa- my, my, my hometown is Bristol and for a city that's so rich in culture, there's very few opportunities to perform here. Mm. So uh, I normally go further afield to, to work and lots of my friends and, and so on haven't seen some of my shows because I've never performed them here. And so I think one of my favourite things I've done here was part of the Harborside Festival a long time ago. Uh, well, eight aerialists uh, all hung off two different cranes in the docks. We did a show hanging off the cranes at the Industrial Museum, so the really old cranes. And uh, that was part of the Harborside um, fireworks celebration. And so there was pretty much the whole of Bristol standing around the docks and um, us hanging off the rafters, yeah. Hanging off the crowns, uh, cranes, hanging off the cranes, hanging off the cranes and being sort of dropped down near the water. Mm. And um, it was, yeah, that's one of my favourite moments ever, I think. Yeah, it must have been fantastic in your home town. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit scary. (laughs) And then I heard some of my friends, I heard. I heard someone shouting, Dunk them, they're witches! <laughs> <laughs> and it was some friends. <laughs> and uh, they nearly got in a fight because there was a woman next to them who was saying, How d- Don't be so rude, it's lovely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, tell you, well, let's talk a little about the social now. I know that takes up a lot of your time also. Why don't you introduce our listeners to the social and how you're involved in that? Okay. And what it is. Ah, the Social Club is one of my favourite things. It's um, a venue which runs for 13 hours a day at Shambhala Festival. And it's also a cabaret show. So I've taken just the cabaret part of the show and uh, taken it to different venues. And we're in the process of making a touring show from that. Uh, It was our 10th anniversary last year, 10th birthday. And as a celebration, we made lots of collaborations between artists who haven't worked together before and um, made some new work specifically for the show and that was so successful that we want to make a show that we're going to tour so watch this space it may not be this year hopefully be next year and how does it start how did did, uh, the social start at the Shambhala Festival so Chris Johnson one of the festival directors approached me after quite a few years of me being in aerial shows at Shambhala and he came to me and said why don't we make a venue together and I thought that'd be great working with Chris you know my experience was just at that point was just programming and um, directing and performing and I thought he would do all the infrastructure and I would do all the the booking of the performers and, and running it managing it on the ground and then three weeks into it he did a runner <laughs> said right I'm too busy see you later and I said you stitched me up and he said yeah so um, thanks very much Chris for that I've, I've uh, been really happy being in that position and I wouldn't probably have put myself in that position mm. without his help <laughs> so uh, we started off wanting to make a venue it was at that point there was quite a lot of venues that were trying to be cool and everybody had to be dressed up to go there and Mm. I wanted to make something that was really accessible and warm-hearted and 
not taking itself too seriously and that people in the audience could feel that they were part of. So it's not just about people coming and sitting down and watching the show. Mm -hmm. Some of it is, but a lot of it is about people feeling as though they belong there and uh, and they, there's a lot of participatory things in the programme. So people can join in and people can get on stage at the right times. So we, we like to try to keep them um, on stage when, when they should be on stage and, and not when they shouldn't. We've had a few, a few interesting uh, moments with that. But um, yeah, so the whole point was to, to have fun, really. Yeah. And so hence the name. And uh, the programme is quite a varied programme. It, it, it evolves during the day. And I've tried to programme things that suit the time of day and suit the flow of the festival mm-hmm. and suit the audience as well. Um, Shambhala is a very special audience and um, they're, they're behind everything. They want to see something good. They come yeah. in saying... Great! What are you going to do? Mm. You know, so you've got it's a lot of free positive. reign to go. We like. Well, it's a positive experience for everybody because the audience is so positive. Yeah. Um, when you're on stage and you've got a great audience, it doesn't get any better than that. You know, you, mm. if they're with you, then you're going to have a ball, and they'll have a ball, and everybody will have fun. Of course. And do you have any particular? processes behind the way you program your stages and the way you put your lineups together yeah I try and learn every year from the things that didn't work so well and the things that did work very well and also I'm very aware that sometimes the show might not have worked so well because of the time I programmed it or because of the other things that were on at the festival at that time so um, I, it's quite a nurturing thing but if something doesn't work then I won't kind of stick with it for too long but generally um, I've commissioned quite a lot of things so we made the birthday party pub olympics that was very successful Um, talent show the talent show kind of ended up with cult following Um, but that's very participatory lots of you know adults and children coming up on stage and showing us what they can do karaoke and Kaylee's and the interpretive dance uh, competition which is now particularly legendary and um, gets a packed audience. Um, so lots of participatory things, but also we kind of start the day with something quite gentle, mm. musical, melodic, um, but something that doesn't require much of the audiences. They can sit down and chill out and just listen to something lovely mm. or kind of ramp it up a bit okay. to some participatory stuff. And then we have matinee shows, so uh, circus and street performance and um, performers from the cabaret world. Uh, There's been more in the evening time now. Can I reach that point? No, this is afternoon. Okay. So, um, longer shows that are uh, standalone, so not short acts, but a, a show. So, for instance, we have uh, Tourette's Hero and Captain Hot Knives, the regulars of ours. They do a 45 minute show and they'll pack the tents, and um, that's part of the matinee program. Mm-hmm. So, okay. um, then we'll have um, I can't tell you who we've got this year. It's, well, it's not. It's not confirmed yet. But I want. Well, to tell say, us a little more about the tenth year anniversary and what happened there. How did it? So that last year, I've always wanted to make the cabaret show. We have a cabaret show which runs from for two hours, which is long for a cabaret show. But Shambhala loves it, and people come in and pretty much stay for the whole show. So um, in the last maybe five years, I've worked really closely with Circa Media, the Circus School in Bristol. And I think it's a very important thing to nurture 
up-and-coming talent and give people opportunities and when they come and perform they'll be um, possibly end up with some really nice promo shots and some video material of their work and get to try their work in front of a good audience and it's a simulation of a well it is a professional environment but for some of them it might be the first time Mm -hmm. that they've worked outside of school or that they've worked in that environment so we try and give them a supportive environment to for for their first time and last year was particularly successful uh, in terms of the performers that we had and the acts that they made so there was an act where a very good juggler who I asked two two very good jugglers who I asked to make a bar flaring routine and so they've made uh, a bar flaring routine so some of the performance came from behind the bar which was brilliant and loads of fun and that act is now they're working on it and honing it so there'll be a new improved version of it this year we hope and there was another performer who made an act um, on the bar contortion act on the bar and that was great to be able to use the environment more than just using the stage and the audience are um, not sure where the next thing's going to happen so that makes it more exciting Mm. and then last year we had Mr Woodnote who's a brilliant saxophonist who runs a jam at the social club we have a jam night so all the musicians that have been around Shambhala over the weekend if they want to they can come and join in and it's phenomenal it's one of my favourite things and Mr Woodnote came to me and said I'd really like to fly can you you make that happen can you make me fly and I said yeah that's fine and he was like no really can you can you make me fly and I said yeah that's fine and I think I think he thought I'd forgotten about it and then much later sort of closer to the time I was like right so and he was just completely excited and it was a brilliant moment it was great to be able to make those uh, him and Elfin, who's a violinist, both took mm-hmm. to the air. Gotcha. Uh, they were counterweighted up by our amazing riggers, and uh, <laughs> and that's how the jam started. Nice. And uh, yeah, dreams come true in the a social magic. Club set up, Very so. nice. <laughs> so you can't allude too much to what's going on this year, as I say, it's not going to be found. But is there anything that you've not had the chance to program into the lineup yet, and maybe one day you'd love for it to happen? Well. Because it's a small festival mm. and it has not very big budgets, <laughs> it's not corporate, they don't mm. grow by a, a large amount to make increase ticket sales, they want to keep it, keep the essence of it very pure, um, which I really respect and it's one of my favourite festivals. Um, the budget's not very big, so quite often there are things, there's a lot of things that I really want to programme and I can't afford them. Mm. And also, because it's the same weekend as Edinburgh Fringe, um, there's a lot of people in the country that I would love to have performing. Tricky, yeah, that must be programming quite a challenge. Yeah, it's a real shame that it wasn't like the week after or something. But um, (laughs) uh, because then I could Mm -hmm. bring people down. But we do, with the stand-up comedy, we bring uh, some comedians down from their Edinburgh shows. We had uh, Phil Nicholl and Phil Kay come down couple of years ago and they just for one show and that was brilliant to have them and we're doing that again this year but I can't see who it is oh it's really boring isn't it it's okay um, don't worry <laughs> sorry uh, so yeah there's there's a band this year that I am talking to at the moment and I've never been able to afford them but they really want to come to the festival this year and 
it looks like it might happen. So that's really exciting for me. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, again, I can't say the name of the show. It's a pointless saying it without the name, isn't it? There's another show that I really wanted to program in, and um, their show's very complex, and um, they to have them come would be... The festival can't really afford them. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think, I think, touching wood here, that we're going to get them, some of the company to do extracts of their show so mm. that's the next best thing to have in the sure. full show and we're very lucky that they want to come and uh, people really like working in the social club which makes me really happy I feel like mm. I've done a good job when people want to come yeah <laughs> well it sounds like a pretty awesome place and I'll definitely get myself down there if I'm ever lucky enough to get down to Shambhala not yeah. a chance yet but yeah um, the other thing that happens is that we have some really good bands in the evening and really good DJs okay and we have uh Jimmy Needles, who's our regular resident DJ, who hopefully is going to be joined by a very special guest. This year. It's all mystery on this show, I isn't know. it? Oh, <laughs> what can we find out about this year? <laughs> Give it a few weeks. Maybe we can do an update. <laughs> okay. okay. And, uh, okay, moving on a little bit now then. Have you any highlights recently? Any ups and downs? Oh, ups in and both downs. Your, There's both always ups and downs. Programming, <laughs> the social, and also, you know, performances and phonetic engineering around the world. I think by nature, this business is full of ups and downs. And I think, you know, you can have a really amazing show and then, especially working outdoors uh, and working at festivals as well, you can have another show that is just not how you dream of it being for whatever reason, whether it's the weather or whether it's the um, the Rolling Stones are on and then no one comes to see your show and you've got an audience of five people. You know, it really varies, but you can make it special for those five people. Um, I think it's about attitude and not about ego. Um, one of the shows that stands out in my mind <laughs> was quite a while ago. I did a duo act uh, on the street um, and we were dressed in kind of show girly style tails and um, high heels and things and top hats, bowler hats. And uh, we were mid-show and it started to rain really gently. And my performing partner said, uh, what do we do? And I said, I guess we just carry on, it's only light rain. And then the rain got a little bit heavier and everything was wet by then already. So we could have pulled the show, but we knew we weren't gonna get another show in that day Mm. because everything was wet. So we just said to the audience, look, if we carry on doing the show, will you stay? And they said, yeah, we'll stay. So we did the show in absolute torrential rain. Everyone was drenched. The show, our bowler hats were filling up, the brims were filling up with water and we'd put our heads forward and loads of water (laughs) would come out. And um, all the other performers had gone indoors and were standing on a balcony just... (laughs) What are you doing? <laughs> and um, we we had a ball, and that was one of those prime examples of, you know, you're in it together. So if the audience are with you, and you're with them, you can have fun whatever the circumstances. And that that was that was one of those moments that I'll always remember because it was just stupid. All of our stuff was completely drenched, and we had made a sandwich in the show, and the bread was just kind of just <laughs> in my hand and uh, but it was great fun and you know th- those are the moments that make it priceless mm. really you know you don't yeah. luckily they don't that doesn't happen every week <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 
Okay, fine. Sorry, Mum. Is she going to kill me? Is she quite nice? Or is she going to stab me up after? Okay. <laughs> oh, now I know she's there. Um, her eyes are burning into me. Um, very, maybe inappropriate, but, you know, let's go ahead with it, all right? I'll be like Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> You're too young to know what that is, aren't you? And do you have any particular inspirations? Like you're talking about some of your very early inspirations earlier with pioneers in the scene as well. But more recently, have you had any, seen any performances or acts that you know, remind you what it's all about or been particularly inspiring? There's, a, there's so much out there that it's kind of hard to pinpoint anyone in particular. But mm. there, were, <laughs> there was a show, this is a long time ago, uh, when I was just starting out doing solo shows and I did a terrible show. <laughs> at Glastonbury it was I don't think my show was ready to be there and um, to make any show I need to point this out actually mm. I think that people need to be aware that um, when you make a piece of work a lot of thought and practice and time and tears and failures and giggles has gone into making that show so um, you the journey to get to a show that is successful is it, it's a journey, it doesn't mm. just happen. Um, you don't just make something and it's brilliant. Sometimes you do, and that's yeah. just such a good feeling. But <laughs> but every show's different, so you might have one yes. good show, and then next week, for whatever reason, the show might not go so well. Um, no matter how experienced or how brilliant someone is, they still have shows that aren't mm. so good sometimes. And that's all part of it. And, and every time you have a show that doesn't work... It's very easy when you first start out as a performer to take that personally and take it on yourself and feel that you're, you're rubbish or that you know, you've done a bad job. But actually, as you become more experienced, you learn from the things that go wrong. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're gifts and you get extra things that you can put in your show. Um, sometimes they're not. But you learn from how not to do things. Mm-hmm. So if you have a show that doesn't go so well, you um, identify what why it didn't go so well was that the conditions was that me was it technical uh, was it inappropriate for the audience was it programmed at the wrong time of day and you learn every time you do it and so nobody's perfect and that's the nature of live performance you're not watching television things happen in live shows and that's the beauty of it um, and what happened to classroom so I was doing a show that wasn't really ready and it went disastrously disastrously wrong and um I did have a laugh with it, but I kind of came away feeling disappointed with myself and I'm pretty sure I cried all the way back to my truck and turned my phone off and went out and on my own and went somewhere where I knew I wouldn't bump into anyone that had seen the show. And <laughs> and I it's really sad. It's a Saturday night at Glastonbury. What was I thinking? I don't do that now. But um, I uh, went to see a show in the Cabaret Town and it was a comedian who's a very silly man and uh, he's he improvises a lot. Uh, he's, he's called Phil Kay and uh, he's a brilliant improviser and he has an immense amount of fun on stage. And I was just watching him and I just remembered that it's all about having fun. And if you're not having fun, don't do it anymore. Um, and he was just so joyful on stage that I just remembered that if I'm having fun, then the audience will have fun. If I look like I'm struggling or I'm not enjoying it, the audience will feel that too. 
And I think that's one of the best lessons I've learned, I think, that, mm-hmm. you know, and also to trust yourself, you know, that if something is going wrong, trust yourself that you can get yourself out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, things like someone having an accident is different from a gift of comedy you know sometimes things go wrong in shows and you just think oh my god that's brilliant I'm gonna keep that yeah and um, so anyway that guy uh, I saw his show and I took it away that I must remember to just enjoy myself anyway of last year I performed my act and he came up to me after the show and said he really liked it and for me that was a sort of a lovely full circle where mm-hmm. I felt that I'd learnt from him and then the person that sort of inspired me had really enjoyed what I'd done. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's been lovely. Felt like a growing nice. up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not really. And the, yeah, the gifts that come up, we were doing a street show in Ghent in Belgium and my my performing partner said, Annabelle, there's, there's a dog shit on the pitch. <laughs> and I... <laughs> it was quite a... Um, quite a technical show so there was a lot of things to set up so in my head I wanted to set up all the technical stuff and then deal with the pile of crap on the uh, on the floor and uh, in her head no self-respecting street performer would set up a show with the dog shit on the (laughs) pitch which is quite right too so she kept saying Annabelle Annabelle there's a (laughs) and I kept going yeah yeah in a minute anyway she got to the point where she was she kind of thought, well, Annabelle's not going to do it. I'd better bloody do it. So she starts to pick up this dog shit. And I start to blow up a balloon. And I didn't realise that she's what she was doing. I hadn't looked at her. I was kind of uh, concentrating on blowing up my balloon. So <laughs> I bet you can imagine what's going to happen next. Um, so I'm blowing up the balloon. I'm blowing it up. I'm blowing it up. And it goes bang. Just as she's picked it up on this piece of paper. And the shock of the balloon bursting made her jump and she just threw this dog turd in the air and looked round at me furious. I had no idea why she was so furious. Anyway, that was a gift. Should have been shot it might not have show. seemed like it for her at the time. Yeah. But we laughed so much afterwards and you know, next time I do a show like that, that's going in the show. Nice. <laughs> So look out for those gifts no matter where they come from. Yeah, no. yeah. And, you know, things that go wrong, if you're doing comedy stuff, things that go wrong are a gift because you have to deal with them and it's how you get out of them. Mm. Um, yeah, it can be fun. So tell me about working at Glastonbury and some of the, some of the additional events you've worked at. You used to perform at Glastonbury, but am I right in saying you work there also? Um, yeah, so I uh, have performed there lots over the years and I've done performed various different roles uh, for two years, I stepped in for someone co-running and um, programming one of the stages in theatre and circus, and that was a great thing because, you know, compared to my Shambhala budgets and um, the scale of it, it was a, a great thing because it meant that I was more able, we were more able to say we'd like this act mm-hmm. and, and actually get them. So, you know, some of the, the dream acts that I want to programme actually can happen <laughs> I suppose it's handy not clashing of Edinburgh for once Edinburgh Fringe yeah and just that everybody wants to go to Glastonbury especially yeah. overseas performers you mm-hmm. know they it's got a big reputation it's a huge draw, and, I guess, yeah. and Theatre and Circus at Glastonbury is one big amazing international family mm-hmm. and uh, you know you see people from all over the world in one place you and see everybody... some of your friends and colleagues from Australia then yeah and everybody gets to 
watch each other's shows and have a drink afterwards and you know it's it's a brilliant get together and also probably I'd say one of the most concentrated amounts of talent in one place at one time mm. that it's possible to have I mean obviously Edinburgh is the same and, and Adelaide Fringe and Perth Fringe but in that environment everybody's living and working in the same place so you just yeah you see everybody and you also meet people that you haven't worked with before or that you haven't seen and I think as a programmer and a performer you need to keep seeing work mm-hmm. you know you need to keep seeing what you like and what you don't like and why and yeah. and look for new talent and mm. um, encourage new talent as well so yeah that was a great opportunity to do that and uh, but I did miss performing so now it's really nice to go back and be able to do shows myself and also working in the production office there so that's kind of good because I've run a stage I'm a performer I've been a zone manager at Boomtown and Secret Garden and other places Mm -hmm. Um, so I know most of the roles relatively well or I've done quite a lot of them performed quite a lot of the roles so I know what people need Mm -hmm. so and that's fun that's a nice thing to do as well I mean out of everything I guess I'd rather be on the stage but you know Sounds like a natural home. It's a great world, all of it. (laughs) Okay, well, um, is there anywhere that people can go to find out about phonetic engineering and the social and sort of social on the road and when that happens, whenever it does? Yeah, where where would you go to find out about it? I've got a website, so it's uh, www.phoneticengineering.co.uk and the social club Circus Cabaret on Facebook but come to see us at Shambhala Festival at the Social Club and look out for Bunny and I'm not sure what else at Glastonbury this year mm, nice okay yeah. well thanks so much for joining us and being the first guest on the show it's been a pleasure talking with you take care and good luck with everything coming up thanks and that pretty much concludes our first episode of Field Dispatches with our very special guest Annabelle Holland some great insights from Annabelle there including trust your instincts Don't despair at the gifts of comedy that are mistakes. Use or learn from them. And don't forget to have as much fun as possible. Then your audience will too. If you'd like to find out anything more about Annabelle Holland, phonetic engineering, the social club, or anything else that's been mentioned during the programme, links for all of them should be available underneath the episode information here below. You've been listening to episode one of Field Dispatches with me, Nick Stokes. Uh, If you'd like to find out more about me online, you can find it at twitter.com slash othernickstokes or nickstokesevents.uk. Join me again next time, and thanks for tuning in. Field Dispatches.